0: We are committed to amplifying the voices of people who are dedicated to Jesus and to justice. It's going to be be so much fun. (laughs) Uh, I'll introduce Diana officially in a minute, but we've been friends for a bunch of years. And this is uh, the book that I just finished. I hope some of you all have been reading it with us this month, uh, Freeing Jesus And I was just telling Diana before we went live that I feel like I know all kinds of things about her now. That's what happens when you write a book that is as personal as this. And there's so many parts of it that are deeply personal. So thanks, first of all, Diana, for writing it. And thanks for being a friend of mine and Red Letter Christians for so many years. And thanks for the conversation tonight.
1: Yeah, well, I I can't think of anything I'd rather be doing tonight. Um, (laughs) The Sound of Music is on ABC tonight. Um, And so I'm going to go and do that after I talk with you, just because I want to see something where the Nazis lose, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah, so it's either Indiana Jones or the Sound of Music, huh? but yeah. Um, So I got to say this, I don't know if you saw the post I put up, but I put up Post of the book, you know, next to our advent wreath. And somebody said, You burn the candles in the wrong order, FYI. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought, isn't that oh a deeply uh, oh, isn't that a commentary on the world? But anyway, I, I I did a little bit of a snarky remark that said, actually, you know, we felt like we had enough joy, but we needed peace a little early, so we burnt that candle before it. But anyway, you know, it, but I I thought this is such a great book to read anytime, but during Advent, it was so refreshing and beautiful to think about Jesus. Um, and I would love it. Listen, y'all, some of you, we may have time for questions, but we love seeing your faces on the screen. And we, I also want to invite you to um, you know, say hi in the chat, um, or even if you're on Facebook or you know another forum where you can put a comment, tell us where you're coming from, look at that. Um we got, uh, Australia, we got folks all over the country. So put a little blurb about where you're coming from tonight. <laughs> and, uh, somebody's missing the sound of music too. Um, and then, um, <laughs> you know, if you want to say something to Diana, she can read those too. So, uh, uh, awesome. Um, and first of all, I, I, you know, at the end of the book, you talk about, you, you name this book, by the way, if, you ha- if you're not familiar with Diana's stuff, she's written a ton of books, Grateful, Grounded, Christianity After Religion, uh, Christianity for the Rest of Us, The People's History of Christianity. Uh, but this book is so uh, personal and it's just um, uh, all about Jesus. And you mentioned at the end that you call it Memoir Theology. And then I kind of thought it was really funny how you say, we call it theology when white men or when men write about Jesus, but we call it memoir when women uh, write about Jesus. And as if, you know, men don't bring their own personal experience into it or something. But you also talk about how we're all writing from a social location. We're writing from our experience and we miss whole groups of people's theology if it's not in the, the old school boxes of doctrinal stuff, like, you know, liberation theology, womanist theology, you know, Latin American, like liberation theology. So talk a little bit about what prompted this book and why it's it's, it's a little different from your other books. So, yeah, you want to say something about that?
1: Uh, sure. Uh, a lot of people have asked me why it's not called a theological memoir, and um, I knew that people would say that mostly because it's written by by a woman. It's, and uh, I have just you know, a huge stack of books or a huge shelf of books over there. Um, and they're they're all memoir type books. And that entire bookcase uh, that I can see from my desk, all those books over there are written by women. And then the bookcase, when you turn the corner, is a bookcase of sort of classical theology books. And almost Mm -hmm. all those books are written by men. And um, years ago, a professor made a crack uh, to something when I asked him if we were studying any women in a theology class. And he said, uh, well, you know, women don't write theology, they write memoir. My bookshelves seem to prove that that's the case. But I, I didn't know how to answer that question or that comment when I was in my twenties. And now I know exactly how I'd answer it. Because if you go and you look at that shelf where all the books are written by men, um, you know, it has the big name guys, Augustine, Luther and Wesley and the Niebers and all those Bonhoeffer. And, you know, you can think about their, their stories, And how their stories shaped their theologies. And Mm so, you know, Augustine, you have all his stuff about original sin, and we know all about him stealing the pears and, um, you know, having the concubine whose name he doesn't even tell us Mm -hmm. ever. Um, And then Martin Luther, you know, here I stand, I can do no other. John Wesley, my heart was strangely warm. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, resisting Hitler and being arrested and put in prison. And all of their theologies spring out of their lives. Mm -hmm. And yet we always think of that as theology. And so what I really wanted to do in this book um, was to write theology that came from my life. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it's Christology. And um, boy, it covers
0: the waterfront. <laughs> yeah. I, so I want to, I want uh, I, I, I mean, it's, it seems too linear to kind of walk through the different categories of Jesus. Like you do it so well in the book, but uh, you know, I, I think I want to kind of land on a few of those, but the first is like how personal Jesus is for you, but how personal that was, you know, and I, I think of that um, you know, there's the, the words of one of the old hymns you write that Tony Campolo taught me. You know, he's he's always said it's one of his favorite hymns. Is the uh, he walks with me. I won't sing it, but he talks with me. He tells me I am his own, and the joy we share as we tarry there, none others have ever known. And so yeah. there's a part of this that that it all started as a love relationship, and in some ways, it really still is. I mean, even as you're ending the book, you you can get, you get a deep sense of how much you love Jesus. So I, I thought you know let's let's start there you know with a little bit of um how how that that personal and love relationship to Jesus started and how it's matured and and evolved over the years not that you're that old but you know
1: <laughs> well I'm turning 63 in just about 2 months and I can hardly believe that um I feel like I'm still 33 so mm. <laughs> time does fly but um you know, it's interesting that you would go there because the Christian Century review just came out about four weeks ago. I, you know, everything is slow with the pandemic. And um, that their review was actually called Diana Butler Bass's Love Letter to Jesus.
0: Mm.
1: And that really surprised me, you know, when it came out and it had that headline on it. And the review centered around the idea that you don't, get a lot of books from people who are progressive Christians that are so warm and Mm. that emphasize this idea of love of God, this kind of devotion really. Mm. Um, and the review was, was surprising to me. Mm. And so, so I'm glad for it. And I think it got the book just right. Um, And why did I go there? Well, it's because that's really kind of one of the central things in my life. Um, many years ago, um, when I was just barely out of graduate school, I was in my first teaching job. Um, I was living in Santa Barbara, California and my best friend who's still my best friend, her name is Julie. Uh, she is a student at UCSB and, uh, she and I were out at a a club one night and, um, she w- just looked at me and she said in the middle of, we we're listening to some great jazz. She said, you know, I just don't get it. You're so smart. How can you still be a Christian? Hmm. And I thought, well, there's a question. You
0: know? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me how you really feel. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, that's a question you hear a lot more now than you did you know, 30 years ago when she was mm. asking that question, but um, nevertheless, she, she asked me that question and I said, well, you know, Julie, I don't mean to go all pious on you, but the truth of the matter is, is that I love Jesus. And I think that Jesus loves me. Mm. And to have said that 30 years ago to a really close friend who was sort of challenging me intellectually about whether or not I wanted to stay a Christian, I realized that that's really the answer that I've had all these mm. years. Um, yeah. and As much uproar as I've been through, as much change as the whole Christian world has gone through in the last, um, you know, decades of my own life and how I've experienced those things personally, um, that central reality of whatever this thing is between me and Jesus, it, it remains.
0: Yeah. And
1: all I can think of is that it's, it's, it's really kind of, it's really a love affair.
0: Yeah. I love that. Uh, and I, I was, y'all didn't get to see this, but before we went live, I was showing Diana this it's I'm, I'm in Tennessee cause we're I'm home for Christmas, hanging out with my mom, eating <laughs> a lot of really good food. And, um, but I'm also in my, my, the, my bedroom that I had when I was young and I've got this, uh, little pendant that Mother Teresa gave me. And sometimes my evangelical friends, you know, it, this this happened a lot more, I think, you know, 10 years ago or something when, you know, now now I was speaking to a group, Diana, and people, one of the hands went up and said, who is Mother Teresa? So, you know, it's a little different now. But, um, you know, w- they, they used to say, well, you know, Catholics don't really believe in a personal relationship with Jesus. And I said, Mother Teresa called Jesus, her spouse. You know, in fact, I can remember a reporter talking to Mother Teresa and said, Are you married? Which I thought was the weirdest question for Mother Teresa. And, you know, he's maybe new to the whole nun thing or whatever. But, um, and she said, My spouse, I am in love. And my spouse can sometimes be so demanding. You know, and she's talking about Jesus that whole time. Yeah,
1: we so, talk about a theological thread. Yeah. I mean, that and, and a way that women have written about Jesus for, for a thousand years is exactly that um, the idea of Jesus as the, as lover, Jesus yeah. as spouse, Jesus as, yeah you know, be, the beloved one. Um, you get that in the whole mystical tradition and, it, and that's dominantly women writing, but there are men who write in that same vein too, in the middle ages. And so, so when she says that she's, she is living in, as you well know, a, a line of Catholic thought that stretches back, yeah. literally to the Middle Ages.
0: I mean, even think of John, right, the beloved disciple who's laying his head yeah. on Jesus's, uh, you know, chest, and uh, you know, I mean, I think that's that's you know, a lot of a lot of guys don't really hang out like that, but anyway, yeah, you know, I, I think that's <laughs> it's beautiful. So, and but then you know, you I, I what I what, what, the other thing I really like about it is even though you kind of talk about these different elements of Jesus, it's not like a linear thing, like you evolve from Jesus as your friend to Jesus as your uh, teacher or Lord or presence, you know. Um, and sometimes people talk about the spiritual journey as, you know, spiral dynamics, or as this kind of like enlightenment phases. And I can remember it being in a conversation with some intellectuals, and some, and one of them basically said kind of off the cuff, well, you know, no one really believes Jesus is coming back again, you know, and my Mm -hmm. wife and I both looked at each other and went, you know, (laughs) (laughs) we do actually, we believe in the bodily resurrection, you know, actually Mm -hmm. we believe in the sick. So I, I love that. And, you know, one of the parts of your journey that really resonated with me was when you did begin to kind of encounter this other radical part of Jesus that when you write about, almost getting arrested with these, you know, women that are sex workers, you, you know, began really leaning into the radical Jesus and um, in, in your sophomore year. And that was literally when our community started, you know, it, yeah. for us was in college. So, you know, maybe say a little bit more about that. And even like what that radical Jesus looks like for you now.
1: Uh, th- the book it tra- does trace linearly, you know, my, my life. And so the the six images: Jesus as friend, teacher, savior, Lord, way, and presence. I got them all, um, <laughs> and um, they correspond roughly with you know being pre-literate Diana. Jesus is my friend. And then Jesus' teacher is basically elementary school. Jesus' savior becomes my experience in high school. And that is really my introduction to evangelicalism. Before that, I grew up in a Methodist family and a pretty, you know, conventional. Methodist family, I think, um, in Maryland in the 1960s, kind of liberal theologically sort of socially conventional. Um, and, and, but then I ran into this, this whole business about Jesus as Lord, as savior first, um, at, in high school and how yeah. that just rocked my world. And then Jesus as Lord. And that's the chapter that, that you're talking about, um, at this point is that, I went from this Bible church in Scottsdale, Arizona, where I encountered Jesus as Savior, and uh, for people here, there'll be a good number of people, I think, on this this call who will understand this. Uh, we had five pastors at that Bible church, and they were all from Dallas Theological Seminary. And so every and this was in the 1970s, and so everything was about the rapture and how Lindsay, and it was the whole wave of end times apocalyptic stuff uh, that c- came before the Left Behind books. It was a late, great planet earth and the world's going to end all that kind of thing. Well, I went from that to going to, um, a Christian college in California and, and back then you know they all proudly called themselves evangelical colleges that was a language yeah. that they 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 planted their flag on and their whole vision was to renew uh, evangelicalism as an intellectual tradition and to create the next generation of evangelical leaders and so while i was there um i graduated from high school in 77. So I was in college between 77 and 81. And it was, it was, it was incredible, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, It's hard to Get people to understand that that particular generation of evangelical young people in California was quite as wild as we were. Uh, We were talking about um, environmentalism, we called it ecology um, Mm -hmm. in those days. We had a radical Christian dorm where everybody who lived in this one dorm, uh, basically signed this pledge where we kept a rule of life and said, our, mm. the hours, um, like, uh, Benedictine sorts of prayer. Uh, there were people who could sign up to be vegetarians <laughs> and, if, and, and we gave the money, the difference in the payment between, uh, a, a food plan that included meat and one that didn't include meat. Um, we gave the money away to the local food kitchen. <laughs> wow.
0: There was, there was. I mean, we were doing, I, this is so wild because we did the same thing at Eastern. We would go without a meal and we would actually pack that meal to go and take it downtown, you know? Right. So, yeah, it's great.
1: And so, so there was literally this incredibly radical group talking about peacemaking, um, Jesus was a pacifist, environmentalism, wor- poverty, world Christianity, all this sort of stuff in the 1970s. And that was my first experience of evangelicalism. So that's what I thought it was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And and uh, people I knew did things like you know give away their whole wardrobe and kept one pair of jeans. There was this one fellow who literally thought that he was Saint Francis, kind of reincarnated, and oh, he would walk him. around. Yeah, see, just like you. Um, uh,
0: no, gosh, no, <laughs> I, I wear clothes. Actually, you know, Saint Francis did that whole naked thing. I'm not into it, but yeah.
1: <laughs> but I, I remember when we first met. You didn't have shoes and stuff, and you reminded um, yeah. me of this guy that I knew back in college. But he. But we lived in Santa Barbara, so that was an explanation for him not wearing shoes. Um, but he would walk around campus in this sort of simple robe with no shoes on, and he would preach the gospel to birds. Yeah. And and we read the mystics. And I mean, it was, it was a really amazing time. But it was in that context that um, we started a street ministry. And I tell that story in the yeah. book about how one night I was in the, on the mean streets of Santa Barbara, California, which is like hilarious. Um, and uh, I was, uh, they wouldn't let me talk, you know, cause this is patriarchy at work. Um, they wouldn't let the, the young women talk to some of the men who we were trying to witness to. And so we were consigned, we were assigned to talk to only women and the only Mm -hmm. women that were on this in the streets were um, what we would have called euphemistically at the time, ladies of the evening. Mm -hmm. And so there I was standing on a street corner talking to this group of sex workers and the police come up and um, they get ready to throw me in the paddy wagon with all the all the prostitutes Uh, when one of the women looks at the cop and says, Hey, look, she's not with us. She's a Jesus girl. Let her go. Mm. And the police said, they looked at me and they said, Oh yeah, you don't, you know, you you don't look like you fit here. And they kicked me out of the paddy wagon and they left me standing on the street corner. And I was really, I felt terrible. At first Mm. I was really kind of glad because I wasn't going to have to explain to my parents why I was arrested with a group of sex workers in Santa Barbara and they had to bail me out of jail. But on the other hand, I was the whole business of, she's not with us. She's a Jesus girl. Yeah. That really hurt. Mm. And so, so it's experiences like that, um, that really shaped me as a, you know, 18 to 23 year old where I was with a lot of other people in my generation who saw evangelicalism as this incredibly radical call to imitate Christ. Yeah. And we took that as far as we possibly could. And the interesting kind of moment comes in that chapter. We graduated, uh, at least my class graduated in the spring of 1981 and just a few months before Ronald Reagan had been elected. So there was this huge sort of wave of radical evangelicalism, and then just as I graduated from college, the religious right was born. Yeah, and so so that made the story, in some senses, change.
0: Yeah, and that's when I was uh, you know heading up to Eastern, where I went to undergrad was nineteen nineties, and uh, some of that was still getting taking shape. And of course, Tony Campolo was my sociology prof. And he was, you know, uh, in the in the thick of all that, uh, the culture wars that were happening then and everything. Right. So then I bet so many of the people that you that were radicalizing you are, I mean, there were folks that were radicalizing us like Chad Myers, you know, who's now a really close friend, I'm sure of yours, but also of mine, but yeah, you know, when I saw him in your book, I'm like, yo, Chad was like speaking at your, your school back then. I mean, he's, he's ageless that man, but anyway, yeah. I mean, but the, you know, the, the the book honest to God Robinson's book that you mentioned, I mean, these were all kind of a part of our own radicalization and everything too. And, and yet then i don't want to if i miss anything feel free to like uh, spend a little <laughs> bit more time on it um but i'm i you know one of the other things i wanted to talk about was because uh So in the middle of the culture wars and everything, there was this kind of blowback of certainty that um, the reform tradition gave. I think it's also like when our community was starting in the 1990s, that was the same time that Mars Hill was starting and Mark Driscoll and some of these these like really staunch uh, you know, uh, reform doctrinal that that kind of certainty. Yeah. People really wanted that in some ways because um, they 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 wanted something firm that they could stand on, not this kind of loose progressivism or something. So there was a version of that that you really write about, and I wonder, you know, how interacting with that affected you, and and even how you're seeing that today. I mean, I think there's a, a new iteration of that now.
1: Yeah the, the... There is a level at which this book, it, it is a Christology, you know, so I look at this idea of Jesus as Lord, you know, in relationship to this, the, the, the radical lordship of Christ in the earth and through political systems. And, and so um, that is a little different. Then the idea yep. of Jesus as Lord, you know, think of Jesus sitting with a gold crown in heaven on a mosaic someplace in a great church. And um, so, so the Christology piece is there, but there's also this piece that is really a history of evangelicalism as seen from the perspective of, of a woman who tra- traveled through it at a really significant time. And so, so there is that seventies burst which I think is really, it was present throughout the country. And before um, everyone else came on, we we were sort of chatting and talking a little bit about our friendship with Brian McLaren and um, Brian experienced that same kind of radical thing, which was often associated with the charismatic movement in in a lot of parts of the United States. And it was in Southern California as well. And it also just wasn't, it was also regular, just sort of evangelicalism in Southern California. But I refer to that as sort of the golden glow of radical evangelicalism on the the Western beaches mm. of North America and how that golden glow, how that sun sets really yeah, um, with a, with a religious right. And it, it was right at that time when I think that a lot of people who had been through the sixties and seventies got really tired. And there was, there was also a couple of really disturbing events, including the Jim Jones Guyana affair, where, you know, that was a really, that was a radical evangelical community that went completely off the rails. And when, you know, he killed 300, but 600, I guess it was of his own followers that made people sort of stop and think, you know, maybe these kinds of movements uh, are not always healthy. Mm. And people began looking for guardrails and there began to be, I think, um, within even some of the more radical corners of evangelicalism, a longing for order. Yeah. And so there's the extreme kind of form of that, of like Jerry Falwell, where they want to make it just like the 1950s, you know, oh, we got to go back before the 60s and 70s. But then there's also this, this group that was like, no, it's not about really going back, but it's about Um, restoring God's order of things. Mm. And it was right then that I went to seminary and um, I went to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary outside of Boston. And Gordon-Conwell had a huge conflict um, in the mid-1980s, between oh. the sort of last gasp of the radical evangelical faculty, who were mostly like the social ethics and justice people, and a few of the folks who taught in church history, and the, the- theology and the New Testament departments. And while I was there, um, the theology department basically got the upper hand. Mm. And it was full of people who were these neo-Calvinists who were basically cheering on many of the Southern Baptist students who were at Gordon Conwell, um, who would later become very famous names in things like the Gospel Coalition. And so I went to, I, I actually sat in class with people whose names you know now um, as people who are some of the leading voices in sort of reformed, um, ordered, very conservative, neo-Calvinist um, mm. Southern Baptist life. And so, so that was there. Um, there were lots of people from like the PCA and some other very um, sort of very conservative Presbyterian type denominations. And, and all of those people were gaining power and um there were uh crusades against the sort of old sort of more hippie-ish kind of evangelicals and lots of people lost their jobs or were demoted or their class loads were reduced or they got run out and um it was it was really ugly yeah yeah and and so i tell that story about what it was like to be a student there at that moment and um for myself, and, and I've never really written about this um, until this book, and I hope you felt it uh, when you read the chapter, I, I was brutally honest about my own need um, as a woman to be accepted. Mm. And I saw all this happening, and I realized that the only way to survive um, in evangelicalism was to go along with the people who were winning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that were, that was all those conservative reformed men. Yeah, And so I threw my lot with them. And um, when I did that, I became a person that I didn't actually recognize myself to be. Yeah. Yeah. And
0: it was, you were even married in, into some of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I did. I got yeah. married
1: at that time. And um, I married someone who graduated from, my first husband yeah. um, was from Westminster Theological Seminary. And um, he is still, to my knowledge, um, I, we, we've been divorced for a long time, um, but uh, he's still, to my knowledge, a, a PCA guy. And, um, and so it was really difficult. And there were things that I said and people I hurt in those years that, I apologize to basically Mm. in this, in this book, but it was, I was so hungry for surviving this shift. And it made me really understand how people could go along with something that is against who they are, especially when they're in vulnerable positions, um, in their own lives. And, Mm. and so, um, that was the story that i tell in chapter 3 was how i got into that mess and eventually how i had to get myself out
0: yeah and, and as you're, as you are navigating some of, some of these different, you know, pieces of your, your, they're shaping you. I mean, not all of us have those stories that have shaped us and it's almost like you're, you're, we're pulling out the beautiful redemptive parts of this and spitting out the bones at the same time, you know, the, and, and I, I wonder, you know, even now, as you think of some of the, the, the parts of the story that you've held on to, you know, in these different eras of encountering Jesus, um, um, it it seems like it gives you a lot of grace with other people that um, are figuring that out in their own way or might be in one of those places that are really familiar because you've been there. I mean, I feel that myself. I I have a lot of grace with people who um, believe the Bible justifies the death penalty because I was there them, you know, like I believe that for a lot of my life. So um, maybe I'd love to hear you talk. I mean, you do it in the book, you know, talk just a little bit about um, how how you find grace for folks that um, are still really entrenched in some of the parts of, of this journey that were real hard for you.
1: The, the main, I think, place I went spiritually while I was writing the book was, and I, and I didn't know I needed to do it is that I needed to forgive myself. And so if you can imagine the fact that I I wrote most of the book during the pandemic and I'm sitting alone in this office, you know, for all these months, it was the deepest part of the isolation from the pandemic and I'm retracing my own life story. And all, and meanwhile, um, Trump is still president. Mm. And we're still getting story day after day after day after day about how evangelical support for Trump hasn't gone down, but instead is going up and we're moving into the the new election as I'm, I'm writing this book. And so I'm sitting there and I, I remember like working on the savior chapter. Mm. And as I started that, that chapter where I, leave my childhood Methodist church and join Scottsdale Bible church. There was a, a part of me that was, I was angry at myself. It's like, how could I have done that? Hmm. You know, the Methodist church that I grew up in, that tradition is a really amazing and beautiful tradition. It has introduced me to Jesus as my friend and Jesus as teacher. And i learned so much about the Bible and it really shaped the heart of my Christian Christian life. Um, why in the world did I turn my back on that and find myself sitting in a fire by a fire in a backyard? All of a sudden, singing, um, "I wish we'd all been ready," and, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, thinking that the, that the world was going to end. And and so as I as I did that, I had to re-enter my own life. I had to go back and be 15-year-old Diana and try to understand what her motives were and why mm. that choice was a good choice, why it was seemed like the only choice um, at that particular moment in my life. And when I did that, all of the sudden there was a part of me that became that 15 year old girl again. And instead of judging myself and saying, you know, Oh, how, how stupid you were for, you know, joining with those Bible church people and they ruined your life and you're going to be mad at them forever. You know, don't do it. Don't do it. You know, run away while you still can. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Instead of that, I was just like going, Oh my gosh, I remember. And, 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 I remembered good times. Mm. I remembered some really beautiful things that I learned and I felt this sort of tie to friends that I hadn't felt in, in, in years and years, um, people from that, that church. And to the point where I just, I wanted to call them all up on the phone and talk to them all. And, And so what that was all about, eventually I realized is that my anger, I was angry at myself and I had not accepted or integrated that part of my life into who I I am. And because I had split off part of myself, every time I saw a story come over the newswire service or come over Twitter or what have you about how much evangelicals love Donald Trump, I would get this Fury. I would just feel furious about it, mm. and um, then I realized that I was really being angry at myself. Mm. Mm. And so, so when I forgave myself, all of a sudden, the the level of rage that I had towards evangelicalism, which I carried for a long time, um, it just it was just like the pool drained.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm.
1: And so that was the moment when I went, oh, my gosh, I wonder if that's really what this project is for me. The memoir part becomes a story about reintegration, about bringing all of the Jesuses that I've known, all of the voices of every stage of Diana um, back to a common table. Mm-hmm. And sort of seeing it as part of one whole journey. And as soon as, as, soon as those pieces start coming together for me, there was a real way in the last um, uh, two, two and a half or so years, three years, I guess, altogether that I've been working on this project that I, I just really let go of so much stuff. And, it, and it's not that I'm not critical about you know, how attitudes, religious attitudes are. Um, right now about politics in the United States. I can write about that with as much sort of energy and critical insight as anybody can, Um, but I'm not angry. Mm -hmm. I'm not, um, my, my life, death, and my whole spiritual sort of journey does not depend on me having any control how this all turns out. What I need to do is be faithful to my voice, to be clear and consistent about what the good news is, to love God and love my neighbor as myself, and to continue on a path that models the the the, the person of Christ in the world. Mm. And that's it. That's what I have. And and to be able to say then to turn around and look at other people and say, you know, that's, that's where they are on this journey. Um, I can do that a lot with a lot more ease and a lot more grace.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, as, as I, um, by the way, y'all that are watching on the zoom, put, feel free to put any comments in uh, chat or any questions. We're going to have a few minutes that we'll, we'll be able to ask Diana about that. But, uh, and, and, Any other things you want to put in the chat, just uh, write them up on there. Um,
1: I I saw a couple people refer to the idea of transcend and include and uh, sort of Richard Rohr's stuff. Um, uh, You know, these are people who influence me too. And um, at the same time, I think it's possible that, you know, sitting in conversation with Richard Rohr, you know, you'd hear stuff like this, but until I actually had to go back and do that work myself. It was just sort of like words. Yeah. Um, and and now I, I'm, I'm really passionate about helping people get to a point where they can. It, it, there's lots of deconstruction going on right now. People all talking about, oh, deconstructing faith, deconstructing faith. Um, and then they talk about reconstructing. And that's great. That's where people are. Um, But their deconstruction and reconstruction is not really the end of the story. Um, It seems just from the kinds of voices of people who have done that kind of work in the past, um, that there's there's even more to be done that's of a different sort of work that lies right around the corner. Yeah, and so I think that deconstruction for me eventually opens a gateway towards a, a reintegration and a kind of new vision of of God's presence that I was completely unaware existed until I until I did it.
0: Yeah, and I, I think you know for for a lot of uh, the folks that are listening in, you know, there's there's a lot of folks that are really discouraged by the church they're really discouraged by evangelicalism but they they really love jesus you know like the 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 gandhi quote we we you know cite all the time at red letter christians is when he was asked about christianity he said i love jesus i just wish the christians acted more like him and i think for you know in your book and um, and for Richard, for Richard, he's a dear friend, you know, of, of ours, and um, he actually just—they just donated ten thousand dollars to us, Diana. To oh my Christian. gosh! So, yeah, it's really, That's he's been so a, an amazing lovely. friend, and he loves Jesus, you know. And it, it's the 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 deeper I fell in love with Jesus, the more I found myself at odds with many of the things that had come to characterize evangelicalism. And it's, it's really beautiful how I think in the book, you talk about the certainty, the transactional nature of Jesus, all that, like, this is what the, you know, the certainty of, this is why Jesus came. This is what happened on the cross. This is, you know, and, and you end up just going, do you, do you love Jesus? You know, it's it's like when Tony, Tony used to say, someone asked you to describe your spouse you should have a hard time finding words. I mean, you know, (laughs) the the more like we're able to put it into words, the less you like, you feel like, do do you really love God though? You know, (laughs) I know that you think you understand God, but uh, you know, I I think that uh, you do a great job at kind of capturing that, like the more that we can put words to it, sometimes the further we get from the essence of it. And if I only describe my wife by what she looked like or the music or, I, I don't know, like all the external stuff, you know, like, it's, it's like I've missed the whole soul of it, you know? And I think there's a lot of theology that does exactly that, right?
1: Yeah, you, the the later chapters, uh, the, the chapters three, four, and five, I think in some ways are ones that people who have spent a lot of time in evangelicalism, they really get those chapters because three is the savior chapter, the The campfire in the backyard. Four is the Lord chapter with the radical Jesus, and yeah, I didn't yeah, even yeah. think I didn't even think until you said it that you probably knew half of the people in that chapter. Yeah, <laughs> but you just ran into them twenty years after I did. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that's fantastic. Um, and then the the Chapter five is called Jesus as the way. And the the fundamental question there is, you know, we say that all the time. I'm the way, the truth and life. But the problem is what happens when you identify Jesus as the way and you're on the wrong way. Yeah. And that's, that's really that path of that hyper certainty is I was so sure that I was on the right path that I was willing to do almost anything to, keep my certainty intact yeah and that that's and that certainty was the marker of that path you know you you didn't doubt you went forward you knew you were right you were right politically you were right in terms of the way that the universe should be set up you were you were just right about everything and how could you be wrong because everybody you you're with on that path has that same level of certainty yeah And so once I got down that path, I mean, I, I, you know, not to give away the store, but I I tell the story about how I realized I was doing violence to others, verbal violence at the very least, and I was doing emotional and psychological violence to myself. Mm -hmm. And there literally came a moment when. I didn't know what to do. And I felt like I was sort of trapped in this funhouse sort of mirror situation. And I literally tried to jump out a window and kill Mm. myself over Calvinism. It's Mm. like literally, and, and after I wrote that, that out, I, I went back up to some of these books on the shelf and I realized, you know, I, I'm not the first woman in church history to attempt to kill herself over Calvinism, Mm. Jonathan Edwards wife. Had a mental Ooh. breakdown over Calvinism, Ooh. and and I went. I thought, well, at least I'm in very good company. Um, and so, so the when that happens, when you get to a point where you realize that you have gotten on the wrong path, and the whole path was marked by certainty, then you only have a couple of choices. And one of them is jumping through a window. Um, Another one is uh, just keeping on the path, you know, just saying, Mm -hmm. I didn't hear it. I didn't see it. You know, none of this is happening. I'm just staying here. This is my life. And I've known lots of people like that. And um, the other one is you turn around, you go back and you figure out where you got lost and you get back on the right path. And so, so that idea of Jesus is the way. Um, is that chapter. So what happens when you're following the wrong way and what is what is the real Jesus way? Mm-hmm. And so the way of love becomes the idea yeah, in that chapter.
0: For, for me a part of where I found life outside of the sort of more uh the, the 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 heavier um even the like the the more toxic evangelicalism that you know we we see now like where I found life was getting Outside of that white um, Christianity and many of the books that we read, if we just did a little audit, right, of the books that we've read that are on our shelf, um, that are shaping how we think about God, tend to be from um, white folks, men. I mean, at least for me, most of my life, you know, and then you start seeing this really robust spirituality outside of that. So so many of the things that you're describing, even in seminary and grad school, they're still coming outside of um, a white kind of male Christianity. Um, And, you know, I think one of the best things we've got going at Red Letter Christians is the the leader's network that you look and you see all of these different voices that are out there that are that love Jesus. Um, but their faith is really robust and it's liberating. It's, it's mm-hmm. life giving. Um, it's not that the beliefs that we have don't matter, but like, we want to know what it looks like, you know, <laughs> you can put yeah. anything on paper, but what is, does what your faith look like? Uh, you know? And, and so as you began to find voices that were life giving to you, you mentioned a lot of them in the book, but it seems to, for you, a lot of those um were women's voices that were vo- voices in the kind of historic black church and coming out of a struggle for liberation. So I think a lot of that we need right now, right? Cause we're still yeah. have a lot of the, the loudest voices. Aren't the most beautiful voices. They're not the most robust kind of faithful voices. Um, and, and so w- where are some other kind of life giving spaces that you continue to find um, that, that real faith.
1: Yeah, I I love the way you identified that because the, as I tried to find the path, you know, I started realizing I had to find new friends. And so the finding of new friends involved for me as a historian, looking towards sort of different sources in the tradition. And I'd always loved the mystics and the, that of course, when you start talking about them, you're talking about people who are largely marginalized by the church, largely women, but not exclusively so people that were often put on trial for heresy, sometimes even um, jailed and sometimes sometimes kill, killed for for heresy. Um, but then the church apologizes to them after they're dead. And so um, the so those voices always meant a lot to me. And then I just gave an example of one, you know, I I certainly read Jonathan Edwards, American religious historian. You can't help but it to read Jonathan Edwards. But when I got to this sort of point of crisis, I wasn't thinking about Jonathan Edwards. I was thinking about his wife Mm. and the story Mm. about her during the first Great Awakening, when all of a sudden Calvinism just sort of crashed in and it didn't make any sense to her anymore. And she had to re-put together pieces of the stories that she knew from the Bible, and that Edwards paid attention to Sarah, his wife's experience, and actually it was out of her experience that he began to craft some of his theology of revivalism. Mm. And so, so I, so that's an, a great example of the way that I started looking towards the edges. See, even the people who are the really famous people, the famous men. Um, they've got these edges sometimes that are the things that are ignored about their writings. Like John Calvin, even Uh, one of the things people ignore almost completely about John Calvin is that he writes beautifully about God in nature. He is one of the premier late medieval writers about the idea that God is Found in and through the natural world, and in that piece of Calvin is almost completely lost to us today, and it's certainly lost to a lot of the the neo-reformed, um, you know, hyper-Calvinist revivalist guys. Um, and so, so these edges sometimes, even a very conventional writers, are the places to look, the the forgotten corners mm. of uh, of a of a wor- of work. Mm-hmm. So so those were places I looked. And, uh, you know, I've got to say that one of the probably the lifeline for me um, when I was in my thir- early 30s was was white feminism. Mm hmm. If it was not for Elizabeth Johnson and Elizabeth schuster Fiorenza and Ann Carr and Rosemary Ruther, Redford Ruther, and all of these incredible women who were uh, about a half a generation before me who were in the prime of their writing uh, when I was searching for some answers, um, I don't know that I would still be a Christian. I mean, those women were extraordinary. And then their writing broadened me enough to be able to look to the next step and that was women of color. And that meant looking more into the African-American tradition very broadly. And then that meant looking very broadly into um, other traditions too. Also certainly Oscar Romero mm-hmm. and some of the uh, Latin traditions really influenced me at that time too, because Southern California. Yeah. And and so so I think that my theological partners, understanding myself. At first, I understood myself on a way with people who were just like me, except that they were all men and the women who were complicit with that. And that's what I really came to understand where complicity comes from. Um, And then to understand, well, wait a second, maybe the way isn't being with people who you're exactly like, but maybe the way is sitting at a big table with a whole bunch of strangers and finding that you're really friends. Mm, mm. And so, so when I turned around, I was less interested in walking on a narrow path and far more interested in setting a huge feasting table. Mm. And so that was where all of these different voices begin to come into play and that I finally listened
0: cool so so there's uh this is so great i mean we could talk all night but we're we're gonna i'm gonna try to uh get us off in the next few minutes uh but the the um there's a few questions in the chat and i i thought one of them um uh someone just asked first of all what uh you're reading or listening to right now um and and uh maybe start with that one what are you reading right now since everybody's been reading your book
1: Oh, um, right now, what am I reading right now? I'm reading a lot of poetry right now. Um, one of the things that I've been doing with my newsletter is I, you know, I write these weekly essays. I've been writing an essay every day. For it's Avan. unbelievable,
0: and they're they they're quality too. You know, some of oh. these these email blasts you get, you're like, oh my gosh, you could come up with quality content like every day? But you're doing really good at it. And it's called the co- it's called the Cottage, right? Is your yes. your yeah, on Substack? Okay, cool. Yeah,
1: <laughs> thank you for saying that. But it's been exhausting. But um, the part of what I do with that is I take my ideas and the things that i've written and i run them up against um the words of poets Um, and so that's thrown me into the the world of poetry and i just i love it the angle, i mean it's it's a classic sort of discovery i guess is that the angle of the of language that comes from poetry and the way it casts light or you know the or the way the shadows fall differently through poetry Mm. Mm. Um, just make me feel ideas from different perspectives. And so that's kind of where I've been spending most of my time in the last six to eight months. It's been especially strong the last two months.
0: Cool. And then a couple of the other questions that were on here, I think Bart, we might try to unmute you, Uh, Katie Lynn, if we can unmute Bart, he's got a question, but there are a couple of questions about the religious right. And um, like, do you, uh, I mean, I think one of them was was very specifically, do you think the religious right is dying out now? Um, I'm going to resist the temptation to respond to that and let you see you go at it, Diana. So go ahead. <laughs> well, I wrote
1: a piece in 1996 about how the Republican National Convention that year was the um, Gettysburg of the religious right. And we can just say that I was wrong uh, <laughs> about that. It was not the high water mark of the religious right. I think what's happening with the religious right is yes, they are demographically um, in deep doo doo, as we might say, um, but when religious movements are in crisis, it and even perhaps dying, what that means is they become more radicalized and more deeply committed, mm-hmm. and so it's smaller, but it's really more angry and more violent than it ever has been. Mm -hmm. And that makes it more dangerous. It makes it in a sense bigger because the commitment and the passion of the people is more extreme. And so the numbers may be smaller and the numbers I think will continue to go down, but Mm -hmm. I think that the commitment level will rise and that is worrisome.
0: Yeah, that's good. I, Tony and I wrote a piece for the New York Times about uh, the re- the evangelicalism of old white men is dead. Um, it was kind of the aging out and the phasing out of some of that. But I think that you're exactly right. You know, there's that book too, The still, it's called Still Evangelical that some of us contributed to. So if y'all want to like, reflect more on the you know the state of evangelicalism and the religious right those are a few other places to turn um bart i think we got you unmuted man can you can you uh, jump in here are you uh, able? i think cool. i can if you can yeah, hear there me there you go go ahead man oh, yeah. yeah thanks appreciate it and it sounds like uh, my question diana might be very similar to samuel's um so i'm ordained in a very Conservative denomination, um, evangelicalism, the Reformed world. I mean, this is my upbringing, this is my culture. And right now, I don't feel called to leave that culture, but I'm very much a stranger in a strange land. You know, if I mention to someone in this culture that I enjoy reading Diana Butler Bass, for instance, you know, you can see the, you know, free- people freaking out all over the place. Um, what, given your story, and your perspective what advice counsel perspective would you give to someone like like us who you know we we feel called you know theologically and in other ways to something else but we feel called to these people for better for worse
1: yeah you know it's a little bit like um the situation you describe right now is a, all of a sudden in the last couple of years i have all these friends who are Republicans don't tell anybody. Um, <laughs> but people that I literally used to read things that they wrote and hated them and was angry at them and wanted vile things to happen to them, like David Frum, who wrote that terrible speech about the Iraq war and uh, you know Rick Wilson and all these people. Some of those people have wound up being honest to God, correspondents and real colleagues and friends people that I like now and it terrifies me (laughs) in some ways because if I say that in some circles they'll say oh my gosh you can't talk to you can't talk to David from that's he's he's of the devil it's like well actually he's a really interesting guy and he has like really good ideas and I think see that's what's happening right now is that there's an awful lot of people who because the world is turning upside down, inside out and backwards is that we're sort of finding our way toward one another. Um, and that old sorts of alliances and old sorts of categories are all breaking down and we're reaching toward figuring out who really is at that table with us, where, who, who's pulled seats up. And uh, one of the things you know that I think is interesting, you know, I love Shane. Shane and I do not agree on every single little jot and tittle of everything politically that there is. But boy, we agree on on really important stuff. We love Jesus, we want, Peace in the world. We see we hate lying. We value the truth. The word matters to us. Um, we don't think that people should be considered better than other people by virtue of their race, their class, or their gender. I mean, it's, so so there's all kinds of stuff that um, brings us to places where we can be in genuine collegial shared space and community with, with each other.
0: And I so think some of so, it, some of it is just the humility, isn't it? Is, is like, yeah. are, are we able to say, this is what I really feel deeply in my heart, but I could be wrong. And I'm, I'm willing to give you a chance to share your heart. I mean, I, I just did this podcast with Russell Moore and he framed it, Diana, he framed it. Um, Tell me where I'm wrong. And he gave, he's like, I want to do this whole thing, just giving people the chance to say, where they think I'm wrong. And I, we talked specifically about the death penalty, but it kind of, kind of raised a question for me. Do I have the humility to have a podcast where I would invite someone you know, <laughs> to tell me where I'm wrong, but okay, we're going to, we're going to well, do this. I just Can I just say real quick, oh, I, was, go
1: I got invited to be on the Trinity forum last month in November. Wow. Um, And and when the invitation came, I said, "Say
0: what that is, because not everybody knows."
1: I guess it's it's actually fairly reformed world of of conservative Christianity, and the woman who runs it, she's a really thoughtful person, and she wants to sort of broaden the voices that they hear. And she really loved my book on gratitude, and so she invited me on, and we had a very very generative and generous conversation. Mm. And she came over to my house and we wound up standing in my driveway talking for more than an hour. It was a beautiful day. So I wasn't like keeping her out of my house. It was just nice to be outside. We we stood basically in my driveway for about an hour uh, Mm. talking about things we agreed on and things that we disagreed about and really just enjoyed one another's company. Mm. And so to Bart, I would say, you know, be where you're called and be your very best most deeply authentic self. And don't be afraid of listening to the voices from the edges and don't be afraid to stand up for what you believe is is truth. And you know, chips can sometimes fall where they may when you do that. Um, but you know, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get fired or run all, out or lose your job. It just means that you're going to be honest with who you are and what you love. And um surprises await out of that kind of authenticity
0: and honesty and and finally Suzanne if you're able to unmute we're going to give you uh by the way Diana and I we're already talking about how we want to do this again really soon and we're going to find like talk about some of the things that we um might not see eye to eye on everything so we're we're gonna this this is fun we're gonna put a dot, dot dot on it but Suzanne you had a great question you can um ask if you're able to unmute or you know, get on the screen with us. And if not, I've got a wonderful reading to close us off. Suzanne, <laughs> are you with us? Are you out there? It's about the Holy spirit. She mm. says she can't unmute. Okay. No worries. Let's see. I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm going to um, we try to give everybody control of their mute. So, but here's the question in the mystical sense. Um, how does the Holy spirit figure in your awakened journey? That was from Suzanne. So maybe just a few thoughts on the Holy spirit and how that fits in.
1: You know, the question in my mind is how do we ever know Jesus without the Holy spirit? Hmm. I mean, literally that's, this is one of those places where the Trinity we think of the Trinity as being, you know, three super distinct beings, but there's a way in which the the, things get a little sloppy uh, between Jesus and the Holy spirit, because I mean, honestly, Jesus lived 2000 years ago. And how do we feel like we have a relationship with Jesus unless the spirit is somehow making that possible? Mm. And I think there's a whole bunch of ways that the Holy Spirit does that, um, that are understandable. And a lot of them that are mystical and very mysterious. Um, But I think that the, the simplest answer I have for her is if you know the work of uh, Grace Jisun Kim, who has a wonderful podcast called Madang, M-A-D-A-N-G, the Madang po- podcast, which runs through Christian century. Uh, Grace is a theology professor at, I think it's Earlham, um, and um, Grace's expertise area is the Holy Spirit. And she and I had an entire hour discussion on the relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit and how that shows up vis-a-vis this book. And it's a very, very powerful part, I think, of feminist theology is the spirit. Mm
0: -hmm. It's great. All right. Well, here we go, y'all. I'm going to close this with a wonderful Advent reading from a section of... just in case anybody joined late, we're of course talking about freeing Jesus and it's been a great hour with Diana Butler Bass. And so this is, I'm going to read just a few paragraphs. This is a lovely way to close, especially in light of it being um, Advent and Christmas this week, even if some of us burned our candles in the wrong order. And um, <laughs> This section is about birth and you have just given birth to your daughter. And at this point, you—that it sounds like the nurse just kind of handed you the baby and was like, all right, you all enjoy each other. And you, and you said, you know, basically that you uh, maybe only one other time in your life had you held a baby that young and you weren't particularly skilled with babies. And so this is the part, y'all. This is um, page 225. I nuzzled her. And natal sweetness filled my senses. We were two who had been one and yet still were one in some mysterious way. And so we remained fully present to each other, lost and found in a moment of new creation that neither had ever experienced. I glanced at the clock on the wall. More than an hour had passed since the nurse left. I looked down and the baby opened her eyes, seeming to look up at me. Pure love enfolded us, a hallowing of this intimate world. The room had become a temple. I had always known birth would be hard. I never knew it would be holy. And then just skipping a little bit here, you said, uh, ancient Celtic Christians believed that infants came from God and that In gazing in a newborn's face, we see the very image of God. And conversely, through the infant's eyes, in some mysterious way, God beholds us. The birthing place is a sort of inner sanctum where we encounter the freshly born presence of God. No wonder that the Christian tradition makes much of the birth of Jesus, the one whose birthplace opens to angels, animals, shepherds, and shamans. It is more than the silent midnight holiness between Mary and her son. The whole cosmos witnesses the birth. More than an image fresh from heaven, the infant is the very embodiment of the divine. Every birth is echoed in this birth. No wonder the stars fill the heavens. The light shines forth the presence of God made manifest the glory of the one from the womb of grace, darkness of birth, light of the world. What a beautiful way to end. I don't even feel, I was going to let you give us a benediction, but I, I think that's it. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you, Diana, for your, your book, your friendship. And, uh, Uh, We'll we'll do this again soon, y'all.
1: Merry Christmas to everyone, (laughs) especially you, Shane. I want to give you a big hug. (laughs) Ah,
0: (laughs) We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Red Letter Christians podcast. Too often, Christians have used our faith as a ticket into heaven and a license to ignore the world we live in. But at Red Letter Christians, we believe our faith is not just about going to heaven when we die, but also about bringing heaven to earth while we live. For more information on Red Letter Christians and upcoming events, additional resources, you can go to the show notes or our website, redletterchristians.org. You can also support Red Letter Christians by giving a one-time donation or becoming a monthly sustainer. Just go to our website and click the red donate button. Thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this movement.